That's amazing. Absolutely amazing. Glad the Lord gave us songwriters in this world to help us express the things that stir up our hearts and help us communicate in a different kind of way than just boring old speech can do. This is the season of adjusted expectations. I kind of want to rename it. This is my theme every year. Every time I get into the Christmas season or even from Thanksgiving on, I always wonder how we're going to do with with our expectational adjustments because we we have so much that we anticipate and we can put pressure on other people to come through for us. I'm not just specifically speaking about gift giving, although some of you put pressure on your parents. I'm looking for my kids. Where are they? No, I'm just kidding. They don't at all. Um, but, you know, you have all these expectations. I hope I get this. I hope we do this. I hope that this is the year that he finally says this to me or she finally does this or something like that. We have all these expectations that come into play. You know, around this time of year, perhaps you walked into this room expecting to sing Christmas music this morning and Gus let you down. You know, I'm, I'm just saying, Gus, give the people what they want, you know, well, Christmas music. This is a different, it was Easter theme, I think we just did, which is actually much more fitting to the, where we're at in the Bible. But, um, but yeah, and, you know, don't worry, Gus confessed his sins to me this week. He was in my booth and I gave him some things to do, you know, to kind of, for penance and stuff, but uh, Christmas music is on its way, and they are working on an incredible Christmas Eve service as well, and so we can't wait to participate in that together, but um, no, the music this morning will make me cry and lose my voice any time of year, so, uh, but this is the uh, the type of expectations that we that we run into. It seems like every year, especially the older I get, I have this expectation that I'm going to consume massive amounts of eggnog. And when the season comes and goes, I've had a taste of it here and there, but really not as much as I anticipated. I have to adjust my expectations. And my doctor's probably thinking that's wise, you know. But I don't know what it is for you. I don't know what it is you walk into the season expecting to happen or expecting to be, or we have even even the people that are out there apart from God are sharing statements and sentiments like, we just want the world to be a better place, or this is a season for giving back, and all these kinds of things. And so everyone has this expectation to be a better person or to encounter better people. And we don't always do that, do we? The the march through John, the gospel of John, bringing us up here to chapter 12, has been, we can sense it's coming, we've seen it in, in pockets, is that the, the, the Jewish people, the audience that Jesus is serving and performing miracles in front of, has a massive amount of expectational adjustment ahead of them. And we already heard one of the great prophecies from the gentleman earlier in Isaiah 9, 6 that, that has fueled their anticipation of the coming Messiah. It says that uh, unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders. So now they're thinking we've got a political savior coming. We've got somebody who's going to get us in that time period out of Roman occupation, establishes as our own nation to, to serve our God the way that we see fit and we've been commanded. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, which also has a ring of sort of political um, advantage and things. Mighty God, everlasting Father and Prince of Peace and the Jewish people were hungry for peace by then. They were all itching for it and anticipating it for it. And then Zechariah comes along and adds to that prophecy and tells him in chapter 9 to rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. 
Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. I, often I, I sense when, when they are confronted with who Jesus really is. And that letdown is happening over and over and over again. That he didn't come to fulfill the prophecy the way that they anticipated. I, I, I sense with them, like you all, that we feel like, man, would I have been duped too? Would I have been more um, expectant of the political Jesus as opposed to the one that he came to be? Would that be a letdown to me as well? They anticipated a king. They anticipated a conquering king, one who would have all of his ducks in a row, one who would have all of the, the prestige and the splendor and all the right pedigree and all the things that would, would establish them, someone they could get behind and brag about. And Jesus comes to be a conquering king, make no mistake. We know how the story ends. We know how it unfolds. We just sang so much about what he did to conquer the real enemy. But they aren't seeing it that way. But a conquering king knows the best time to advance. The, the challenge that the Jewish people had is that they are people. The challenge they have is they are finite people living in a finite uh, space of time. And for them, the clock is ticking. They've waited long enough. Where is our Messiah? Where is our rescue? And so all the ones that would come along and they would, they would show signs of charisma or political advantage or military strength or something, they'd say, okay, we can get behind this guy because now our time has finally come. And they're looking, but the clock is ticking. This is what we do. Citizens of earth, I know it kind of sounds a little sci-fi-ish, but citizens of earth, demand immediate results because we have a limited window of life. We want to see change and victory happen in, on our watch. Jesus seems to be taking the slow approach every time throughout the gospel so far that he's had an opportunity to capitalize on his success. Every time the crowd has rallied behind him just because he uh, uh, performed the miracle of the bread and the fish and fed the thousands of people and everything, it's clear from John's writing that that was what they wanted to use to come up with the campaign slogans and put the signs in everybody's yards and say, our guy is finally here. We got a candidate we can get behind. What does Jesus do? Every opportunity, he ducks the crowd, leaves them behind. He says, this isn't what I came here for. My time to do what I came to do isn't upon us yet. And that's frustrating to us as we live in our temporary existences and we say, but I want to see change now. I want to be a part of the solution. And you're not scratching that itch for me. But a conquering king knows when it's time to act. If he's going to do the job right, he knows when to strike. And he intends to strike, as we're going to see in our text this morning. But heavenly results are, operate on a different timetable. There's a lot of prophecy that's taking place here um, in our text this morning. And uh, I'm going to just uh, jump to it real quick here. And I apologize, Kelly, because I um, got my signals a little crossed and I expected a reader up here, which we had. And it was a different spot than what I expected because Pastor Tom set all that up perfectly, told me how it was going to work. And I was like, ah, uh, yeah. Sure, I'll figure that out and forgot. So let me read some of this text that you may not have on the screen in front of you. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. Now, I just want to stop here in verse 12 of our text because all this is about is timing. 
this particular point. And that little statement gives us enough to go on because Jesus had picked the day to come in when it was finally time to happen. And Luke gives us a little bit more detail of what's going on when Jesus walks in. John saw fit to only include certain pieces to make his point. Luke comes at it from a different angle. So we're going to jump over to Luke 19, picking up in verse 41. When he drew near and saw the city... He wept over it. This is the second time we see Jesus weeping when he observes the loss in the morning and the, and the difficulty that's in front of him. But this is a little bit different. Why would he be weeping coming into a city where there's going to be celebration and anticipation of a great event like the Passover? He tells us. As a shepherd, he looks over this and, see, and says in verse 42, Would that you, even you, speaking to his, his folks in Jerusalem, had known on this day the things that make for make for peace. But now they're hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. Very specifically, Jesus is saying, because you didn't anticipate my march into the city today. You say, that's awfully specific. And oftentimes we can look at the, the fact that so much is going over their heads and we can look back in retrospect and say, well, we have the advantage of knowing how the story plays out. Man, now why is Jesus faulting them for this? Turns out that this is going back to a prophecy in Daniel chapter 9. Now, I am going to be the first to admit to you, I am not a prophecy buff. Uh, the prophecy is what will tell us how things play out. Some things we're able to figure out and some things I think are supposed to remain a mystery. Um, if you've heard of the different um, views of the end times of uh, millennialists and stuff like that and everything, I'm a pan-millennialist, which means it'll all pan out in the end. So that's kind of where I live on these things. Now, I know some of it I've had to for what I do. But uh, I am not an expert in the measurement of, of weeks and years and all these kinds of things, so I'll rely very briefly on the expertise of others. But let me jump into Jan Daniel chapter 9 to set the stage. This is the prophecy that Daniel receives from an angel, beginning in verse 24. Seventy weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city. Now, let me stop here for just a second. Weeks in Daniel's prophecy do not mean periods of seven days. They are seasons and years. And there's a way and a system, and there's been many attempts to make sense of what these 70 weeks are, uh, much with very good success. And we're going to rely on some of that su success as we make this point. So the, the angel says to him, 70 weeks have been decreed for your people in your holy city. There's a start point. You've got 70 weeks to do what? To finish the wrongdoing, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for guilt to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy and to anoint the most holy place. So you are to know and understand that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks or we'll just clean it up and make it what it means to say here is 483 years. Prophecy is saying from the angel, Daniel tell Israel, they've got 483 years to clean up their act until the Messiah comes. 
That seems like a pretty long window of time. Surely they're going to get their act together. Surely they're going to grow in their anticipation of who Messiah is. And we've been saying all along in John that there's a, there's a cultural anticipation that they're looking on the front, on the headlines of every newspaper. You know, that, oh, this one might be a Messiah and the Messiah might be coming. There is an anticipation that it could be any time. This date predicted in Daniel 9 or this this 70 week launch has been determined uh, by study to be on March 14th, 445 B.C. It's a decree of Artaxerxes to uh, to build the temple in Jerusalem to rebuild it. And uh, because I'm not an expert in these things, and I listen to, uh, uh, on occasion, some people who are, uh, Sir Robert Anderson, who is a, um, a former detective with the Scotland Yard, heard Jesus' words in Luke 19, and heard Jesus hold the people accountable. You should have known I was coming today. And that phrase intrigued him like nobody's business, and it caused him to do a study and to dig in deep. And he wrote this book called The Coming Prince. So if you're interested or you want to talk more about the details or something, consult Sir Robert Anderson, The Coming Prince, for the details. He accounted for the distinctions in the calendar. We've got two different calendars that we're working with between the Hebrews and what we use for a calendar today. He accounted for leap years, all these sorts of things. I promise we're going to move on with all the math here pretty soon. I've hit about the depth of my knowledge already. He counted it to be 173,880 days from the decree of Artaxerxes to April 6, 32 AD, when Jesus walks in to the city and says, you should have known I was coming today. That this is the moment 483 years later, you should have been looking for the Messiah. And they might say, well, we've been looking for the Messiah, but they were looking for the wrong one. Because a whole lot of things have to go right before we start saying, well, Jesus is doing self-fulfilled prophecy. He waited until the day. A lot of things have to go perfectly right for him to not get arrested before. For the people to be ready to receive him when he walks in. All of these things have to be timed just right a week before Passover. For him to be the fulfillment of that prophecy and to hold them accountable. You should have been expecting me to come today. A great reason why we no longer have uh, that expect, or we don't have that expectation when we should is because we have our priorities all out of balance. You see, we're anticipating a king to come, a victory to come with a strategy that looks like what we would concoct. But that isn't how Jesus operates. So what are we saying about this prophecy? What do all these dates and the number of days and all these things mean to us today? Again, we're looking in the rearview mirror. We believe that Jesus is who he claimed to be. We believe that he died for our sins and that he rose again. We believe that he was victorious, that he accomplished what he set out to do. But you and I still give in to an anxiety and a panic about the situations and the circumstances of our lives. And we forget the fact that this is the same God who could have had a a plan 483 years in advance and nail it perfectly on the day that it was supposed to arrive. And we still think somehow he hasn't got a handle on our bills. Or he doesn't know what's going to happen with our health. Or he doesn't know even what's going to be the outcome of losing someone that we love dearly. We doubt that he has a plan. We doubt that he has the strength to see that plan through. And yet all along he's given us the evidence. Relax, I've got this. The precision of God's timing should destroy 
our anxiety. But as I already said, a conquering king not only knows the best time to strike, but he knows the best strategy for victory. In verse 13, it says that they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. They're singing a psalm of that, that has probably led them on their journey. By now, a couple of million people will have migrated back to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. And along the way, they would have been shouting Psalm 118, Hosanna, save us now. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And now as Jesus is coming in, as he's walking in, as he's, and he's riding in on a donkey, they're starting to lay the palm trees down and they're shouting, he's here. He's here. Hosanna, save us now. You've come for just the right time and now we're waiting for you. Hosanna, he is here. As we've already said at the outset, these palm trees and these cries of saving us now is a little different than what we might say today. At least I hope so. But it's a challenge for us because we have our priorities out of balance. This goes back to even in the biblical times when Israel was itching for a king. They said, we want a king. And then they see Saul and they're like, he looks kingly. The Bible describes him head and shoulders about everybody else. Must be mean he's a better leader. Like we want a king, all of our neighboring countries and our enemies, they all have a king. We want someone we can get behind. We want someone we can fixate on. We want someone we can blame when it doesn't work out so well. But we want a king and Saul fits that description. Turns out to be a dud. Ends up being David, who's the better king, the one that no one was looking for. Don't we go through this in our U.S. elections? Don't we often make the statement? We hear it from the political pundits or we hear it from the man in the street interviews and stuff. What is it about this particular candidate? I don't know. They just look presidential. They just come across presidential. Dare I say that whole thing has gone by the wayside for the last many years. I thought for sure Mitt Romney was going to win just because he looks like a TV president. I mean, you can't get more movie-ready president than Mitt Romney, right? And he didn't win. I was like, okay, maybe that's starting to change finally. I don't know. But you see, we have our priorities all out of balance. We look for things that are more meeting our needs, or they might be more on the surface as opposed to the depth of the way that things should be or the way that things should go. And as they're laying these palm branches down, as they're shouting, Hosanna, save us, they're thinking back to a revolt, a successful revolt that we talked about several weeks ago, that Maccabean revolt where it went up against that guy who had come in and he had desecrated the temple and he had embarrassed their religion, all saying that he was going to blend the two cultures together and everyone's going to get along. And instead, he just trampled on the sacred things of the Jewish people. So Judas Maccabeus leads a revolt and fights them back, successfully pushes them out. And then, and then it became the cause of an annual celebration and all of these things. And so they started uh, uh, showing palm tree, the uh, palm branches as a symbol of victory. It starts showing up on their coins. Really what they mean, it's like waving a flag. They're like, when Jesus is coming, they're like, finally, from a national perspective, our savior has arrived. You see, we need to really be honest about what the battle really looks like if we're going to win. And I believe that's been one of the great losses 
in our Christian culture over the last several years is that we've taken our eyes off what the real battle is. We've taken our eyes off what the real war is supposed to look like. And these things the scripture tells us are fought in a spiritual realm and we keep expecting physical saviors to come and save us out of a physical battle. I mean, a spiritual battle. We need to be honest about what the, what the battle really looks like if we're going to win. And Jesus, the conquering king, came to do business with the real enemy. It wasn't on their timetable. It wasn't because they were waving palm branches and they were going to win an election. He came because he had identified the enemy to be the sin that inhabits our lives. There was the enemy of our souls and it was spearheaded by the temptation of the devil himself. And he came to defeat that enemy by sacrificing his body on the cross, a perfect sacrifice to pay for our sins so that his holy father, our God, would be satisfied with that payment and take the pressure, take the burden, take the penalty off of us if we place our faith and trust in him. This is why the writer of Hebrews says, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, that is Jesus, Likewise, partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. You can almost picture Jesus looking past the crowds. You can almost picture him seeing an imaginary cross and just almost enduring the palm branches, enduring the the, the chance of the people. That's why he's weeping, because he sees that what they're accepting of him is so um, superficial compared to what he really came to do. And in a moment, in the blink of an eye, they were going to be the same crowd saying, okay, he didn't turn out to be the one we wanted, so let's kill him, get him out of the way. we got to get moving on to the real one. He's another one of these phony messiahs who's let us down. Why? Because he didn't accept our rally cry. He didn't take up our position to lead our nation. This is the strangeness of the expectations of people, of mankind. I just want to share uh, an opening uh, that uh, Kent Hughes has in his book on this, on this chapter, on this passage of scripture. I just want to read it from him because it uh, spells it out so well. Here's a, a story about somebody you may not have never heard of. I hadn't until I read this. On December 4th, 1977 in Bangui, capital of the Central African Empire, the world press witnessed the coronation of his imperial majesty, Bokasa I. The price tag for the one event, designed and choreographed by French designer Olivier Bruce, was $25 million. At 10.10 a.m. that morning, the blare of trumpets and the roll of drums announced the approach of his majesty. The procession began with eight of Bokasa's 29 official children, I can kind of relate, parading down the royal carpet to their seats. They were followed by Jean Badel Bacasa II, heir to the throne, dressed in a white admiral's uniform with gold braid. He was seated on a red pillow to the left of the throne. Catherine followed, the favorite of Bocasa's nine wives. I cannot relate. She was wearing a $73,000 gown made by Lanvin of Paris, strewn with pearls she had picked out herself. The emperor had arrived in a gold eagle bedecked imperial coach drawn by six match Anglo-Norman horses. He wore a 32-pound robe decorated with 785,000 strewn pearls and gold embroidery. On his brow, he wore a gold crown of laurel wreaths like those worn by Roman consuls of old. A symbol of the favor of the gods as the sacred march came to a conclusion. Bokasa seated himself in his two and a half million dollar eagle throne, 
took his gold laurel wreath off and his Napoleon 173 years before had done, took his $2.5 million crown, which was topped with an 80-carat diamond, and placed it upon his son's head. Now, we hear that and we think the audacity, I mean, the extravagance, the... The pomp, everything that comes with that. And we're thinking, man, I hope he had a really good strategy. I hope he had a kingly game to back up all of his, uh, all of his showing off. This is, this is what people would expect when they see this king coming. They must think we're all set now. This guy has to, in order to match all of this, we're going to be all set. We're going to be okay. Looking back on it, we'd have to think, well, that's pretty extravagant and disgusting. But at the time, I wonder what it did for the people. I wonder if they immediately thought that or if they thought, hey, we're legit. Like we're on the map now. Look what our king can do, because this is a bit of the twistedness of mankind. We have a tendency to take our eyes off the ball and we expect the king to come a certain way. And when he comes in the exact opposite, we said, this is not what I expected. But heavenly strategies go unseen by earthly kingdoms. Because Jesus in verse 14, instead of coming in with all of that, he finds a young donkey to ride on. And unless we just think that's all he could find, this too was a part of prophecy and other portions of the gospels will tell us how this all came to be. But what we need to know is that Jesus is fulfilling prophecy, even though this is an incredibly strange image for a conquering warrior to walk in. And even though they are doing their level best to give him the palm branches and everything, they have to be thinking the donkey, really? Isn't there a, a, a giant war horse? Isn't there something that's a little more impressive than this that we could have him walking in? But this is what Zechariah 9, 9, and 10 said that I stopped short of. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Why would God have him do this? He says in verse 10, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Jesus chooses a donkey because it's been prophesied and God chose the donkey because it was an image of peace, which is the great longing of everybody's heart. You know, sometimes we get a little frustrated to hear people keep talking about, you know, everything's about peace or, you know, like just this wishing fantasy. But that should also encourage us that there's something that we're created with. There's something that's been born in us of God to want to have finally a resolution to the chaos that we live in. That peace has been all upended and everyone's best attempts continue to fail no matter what political strategies are put out or no matter how cool the music is that talks about peace or any of these kinds of things or whatever other temporary events we can unite around. We all go back to war with other people because the war in our hearts is still raging on. And until Jesus conquers that war in our hearts and settles the peace that we need to have between our sinful hearts and a holy God, that peace won't exist. So God says he's going to come in on a donkey because I'm cutting off the chariot. I'm cutting off the war horse. Jesus no longer needs these kinds of weapons to win the battle that he's come to wage. His weapons would be humility and sacrifice. Ugh. 
Ugh, not humility and sacrifice. Come on, give us the 32-pound robe. Give us the, the ridiculously ornate chariot or something. At least make us feel like we're a part of something big that's about to happen. And we get a donkey and some humble dude that's saying, hey, I came to lose. It's not very inspiring. They should have known he was coming. Because Isaiah 53, 5 says he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. And we think, how could they have missed this? They really didn't. This is a stealth plan, not because God didn't announce what was going to happen. They didn't understand all the ways he was going to unfold it. But he said from the beginning, it was going to be a path of humility and sacrifice. But it was stealth to them, even though God announced it, because they didn't want to hear that version of it. Some had even started believing that there might be the possibility of two messiahs. We have one that's the winner and one that's the sufferer. Because they couldn't accept that it could all be one. They didn't have the end strategy in view. Even the disciples say to us in John 12, 16, his disciples didn't understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. And a conquering king receives devotion from his subjects. What we're going to see here in this passage is that that Jesus' real success, the impact that he's making is starting to enlarge in the tent of followers beyond what the Jews even saw possible. In verse 20, our text says, among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him. They might have found out Philip because of the Greek name and stuff like that, maybe thought they had advantage. And what did they say? We want backstage passes. Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip and Andrew were kind of blown away by this because they knew these were non-Jews coming to them. These were Gentiles. These were as guys were from outside their their in, originally intended audience. And, and yet the impact of Jesus was starting to grow and bring them in. And so they run to Jesus and say, hey, we've got some Greeks here that want to meet you. And that seems to trigger Jesus response that it's now time to make a run at this. You know, Jesus, it's not that he doesn't give them an answer. He doesn't say, okay, well, let's go talk to the Greeks. We don't know if he had a personal conversation. But John records it as though they bring the news to him that the Greeks want to see him. And Jesus says, I've got an answer for the entire world now. This is what's about to happen. And in verse 23, he says, the hour has come for the son of man not to be victorious, not to be celebrated, not any of these things, but to be glorified. I love the use of this word. I think it's amazing that Jesus is saying, it's time for me to set the wheels in motion, even though they have been moving in this direction. It's time for me to set the wheels in motion for the greatest aspect of what I came here to do to happen. This is why Hebrews tells us that we need to look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith who for the joy that was set before him, he saw the end result. He endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus had the mission, had the ability, had the focus to look beyond that was which was right in front of him and to move towards that goal. 
And I think it's an amazing little phrase in there just to kind of take a side trail for a second where it says that he endured the cross despising the shame. This whole march of Jesus is nothing but humiliation. He is rejecting all of the celebration, all the things that you and I would be so tempted to take. I mean, if we had a march, uh, we, had, we had a thousand people out there saying, we love the message of this church and we think that you and you and you and everything, you guys, if you ran for office, we'd get behind you. We'd put all kinds of money in your campaign and everything. We'd be like, well, let me think about it. Because there would be something about just being picked, being sought after that just immediately starts to stroke our ego, even if we're kind of humble people. It's hard to deny that. And Jesus, right out of the gate, dismisses those attempts. And he says, that's not what I'm here for. And instead, he embarks on a path that just increases his humiliation. That leads ultimately to being hung naked on a cross. He knew that was coming. This wasn't an unfortunate side effect of suffering. It was a strategy towards victory. Carson says this about that little phrase. He says, it's not just that the shame of the cross is inevitably followed by the glory of the exaltation. See, this is how we look at it. We look at what's amazing about Jesus' glory is that he was brought so low and then he was exalted high. And that's absolutely true. But Carson is saying there was glory even on the low road that in the midst of the suffering, there was something exalting. There was something praiseworthy even about that path. He says, but that the glory is already fully displayed in the shame. Let me put it to you the best way I've been able to wrap my head around this. The embarrassment of the cross is the endearing glory that causes his followers, you and me, to love him even more. Whether we really camp on this or not, when we think about the fact that the, the, that the son of God, the brilliance of all heaven, the worship of the angels, came and was born in a dirty manger, lived the life for his first years of, of little note. And then as he made himself public, took nothing but the jeers and the taunts and the confusion of the people that were supposed to love him, celebrate him, anticipate him. And then those that were in power that were threatened by him went out of their way to just antagonize him for three and a half years, eventually chasing him to the cross and murdering him in an absolutely horrific way. And there's something in us that can say, that's my kind of savior. The guy coming in with all the jewels and the two and a half million dollar crown. I mean, we can't relate to him. That guy didn't go down. He didn't live in my streets. He didn't drink from my wells. He didn't do it. I can't relate to him. But Jesus did those things. He walked that path. He had his beard pulled. He felt the pain and the temptation, all the things like I can relate to. And yet he did it perfectly to pave a way for me. That what we do is we start to praise him for the shame. It exalts him even though he took that path. You see, that's a strategy that he implemented was to go through that shame. Why? Because it would endear you and I to him. It wasn't an unfortunate side effect. It was part of the plan. Again, the writer of Hebrews tells us what we can do with this. He says, consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself. Why? So that you may grow, may not grow weary or faint hearted. He didn't do it for nothing. He did it to show that you can make it through, that you can keep your eyes on the prize, even as you go through those difficulties. 
And then towards the end of our text together, we see that kingdom success requires the ultimate cost, which is us to lay down our lives. I've been trying to frame this this morning in a bit of that sort of kingdom and king mindset so that we could see if you have a good king, you're ready to lay your life down for him. If you have a good king like the Israelites wanted when they when they chose Saul, they wanted someone to rally behind. And this is who we have. This is what John is putting on display for us. But there's a cost when you have a kingdom that needs to have success. It requires the sacrifice of its subjects. Jesus doesn't shy away from telling us this in verse 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. So therefore, whoever loses his life, loves his life, loses it. Jesus is saying, yes, I am asking you to lay your life down. And that life word isn't necessarily the same. It's not the same as what we've been talking about with eternal life. We said that's the zoe. That's the, the everything that awaits us and that which has been planted in us now in forgiveness in God. But that life that he's talking about is what we would translate psyche. The, 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 what we consider to be the real us. The deepest, most inner us. Jesus is like, you let that guy or that girl die? And it will plant like a seed that will have an impact uh, for, for all of eternity. You won't be able to measure the produce. And what does our world tell us? Find that inner person. Be true to that inner person. Exalt that inner person more than anything else. Give your life to pursuing who you really are. And Jesus is saying, not in my kingdom. It's not how this kingdom's built. It's not how it will survive. He says that life there, that who you are and your identity and everything, you plant that in a ground. It's not just burying a corpse. It's planting a seed. You sacrifice that for me. I will give you a life that you can't even imagine is what Jesus is saying. Verse 25 also says, whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If you're serving the king, you want to be where he is. I, I, for some reason, I don't know why I'm thinking of this right now, but in elementary school, I remember a teacher using an example. You know, these are dumb things that you remember. Like, I wish I remembered so much more about grammar and punctuation. It would help me with what I do today. I don't remember any of that stuff. But I remember her saying something about trying to get us to see what life was like in a kingdom. We were probably talking about British royalty or something like that. And she just made this silly expression to, to let, let us know that the, the country followed the whims of a king. She was like, so if the king had lunch at noon, we had lunch at noon. If the king went to the beach, we all went to the beach. And in my little second grade brain, I'm picturing, that's a lot of people at the beach. And I'm picturing, does the king keep his robe on in the heat? Does he get a little sun? I just, it, she was just making an illustration and I took it literally that if wherever the king went, the people went. But I have that image now because Jesus is saying, where I am, there will my servants be also. You think about loyal service behind a, a noble king and they want to clean up the mess behind him. They want to make sure his meal is, is prepared. They want to make sure it's not poison. Let me taste that first, king. And there's a willingness to do this. There's a, there's a, there's a passion for serving the king in that way. And this is what Jesus is saying. This is what my kingdom looks like. I know it looks like loss over here. I know it looks like defeat, but those that see it and those that are willing to lay themselves down will find life in the service of the king. 
This is how we find eternal peace, not the temporary peace that we so often settle for, not the temporary peace that we're going to see everywhere being uh, um, sown throughout our community during the Christmas season, not the Christmas um, song peace in, in our common understanding, but in the way it was intended, that that war between the sinfulness of our of our souls, of our hearts, has been settled because our conquering king paid the price. He kept his eyes on the prize. In your notes, um, in the conclusion part of that, if you're so inclined, I have some ideas for you to consider this week on how to kind of process and digest some of this. I would encourage you to even do something like a midweek, you know, kind of lunch break, pull the things out and ask yourself. I've had have some questions in there that might mine the depths of your heart a little bit as you process this. But I would encourage us to consider the time. To identify the areas of our life that we find it hardest to wait on God's outcomes rather than expecting to just be relieved of any pain or difficulty. Lord, just take this off my plate. All of our prayer requests being full of the request for alleviation. Maybe the Lord wants us to wait and to, to act on his timing more precisely than our own. I would also encourage us to reassess our strategy. Have you taken matters into your own hands to win the war of the day? How confident are you that you have implemented God's strategy for your battle plan? How's that working for you? And then I also think it would be important in our calling to change our identity. To lay down the life, the innermost us that we spend so much time to serve and to pamper. And instead lose our identity in him. What is the king doing today? Is he going to the beach? I'm going to the beach. What's the king? What time does he eat lunch? I'm eating lunch then. Of course, now I'm being like my teacher and I'm being silly to make the point. But where's the last time you had that kind of dedication? Jesus says, jump and you're already coming down. So what are you holding back? Maybe it's the things that give you identity. Do you see God calling you to lose yourself in his identity? Let's take some time to pray about these things. Let's prepare ourselves to sing our way out and uh, and to fellowship with one another. Would you stand, please? Lord God, thank you, Father, for working in our midst. God, I don't know all the ways in which um, the words that you've given me and the words that you've given John in his book have impacted the hearer today. So I just pray, God, that your spirit would rest quietly on them. I pray that there would be a willingness to hear your voice so that you wouldn't have to shout it. And I pray, God, that there would be clear answers and direction from where to, to, for where to go from here. I thank you, Lord, for the peace that you've granted us. I thank you, Lord, that we enter a Christmas season knowing really what it was set to accomplish. And I pray that you'd give us the next several weeks of the Advent season together as a church and individually as followers of you to really reflect and thank you and praise you for the peace that you've settled in our hearts. I know, Lord, that we still feel like there's a lot of war going on, and there is. But ultimately, Lord, you've fixed our problem. You've given us eternity regardless of how the circumstances of this world work out for us. You've fixed our eternity, so that will change our today. Grant us, Lord, a trust in knowing that your timing is perfect. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.